Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. If you're looking for the future of digital government, you may find it in the unlikeliest of places. Try Estonia, the tiny Baltic country next door to Russia. It was once part of the Soviet Union, and after the fall of communism, Estonia made a big bet that computers and online services would be a pathway to prosperity. That bet has paid off. The country now offers nearly all of its government services online, and Estonians are behind internet innovations such as Skype and Kazaa. Simsekut is the man charged with making sure Estonia stays on the cutting edge. I sat down with him at the C2 conference in Montreal to talk about his role as Chief Innovation Officer and what Estonia can teach the rest of the world. Here's our conversation. Sim, welcome to Montreal and to C2. And welcome to RBC Disruptors. Thank you. Thank you. First time being here. <laughs> Great of you to, uh, to join us. Uh, Sim is the founder of Estonia's e-residency program, and he's a real thought leader as well as a government leader in Estonia in helping to transform its whole approach to the state in the, uh, in the digital age. So there's lots we can learn, lots we're, we're going to talk about, how governments, how borders, and how our notions of citizenship are changing because of, uh, because of technology. Now, if you're not familiar with Estonia, you're probably not alone, but it's a million, 1.3 million people I th- uh, at last count, Sim. It's about the size of, uh, of central Montreal, but it's had a profound impact on the world in terms of, uh, well, in many things, but especially in terms of the digital state. 99% of state services are available online. You've had online voting since 2005, I believe, and you, uh, you're a pioneer in e-residency, which is is uh, one of the many things we're going to talk about. But so maybe we can start first with a bit of history about Estonia, going back thir- nearly 30 years now, coming out of the Soviet era. What sparked this, uh, this digital revolution? Well, there's a few things there. So um, first of all, as we were coming out exactly from a totally different regime, then uh, 19, 1991 was when we restored our independence. And... Uh, we had to reboot the whole country, essentially, right? Rebuild the economy. I mean, go to all the way to market economy foundations, rebuild the democracy, governance. I mean, the whole thing. And so, in doing so, obviously, we had the luck that um, you know we we were trying to kill old ways, so we had no legacy necessarily. Right? We could adopt whatever was the latest thing out there. And um, 90s was the time when internet started going mainstream, right? I mean, so really into the uh, uh, desks and uh, in, in home, at homes and in workplaces, right? So on a massive scale. And so basically there was quite a lot of techies and engineers and, and visionaries in Estonia who said to the government, look, why don't you also try this too? Especially because the second dimension now is especially because as a small country, we've always had a very clear and strong uh, efficiency challenge how to be a fully-fledged country with very little resources, meaning you know, very few taxpayers and, and you know, no uh, natural riches necessarily that, to export to the world. So how do you pull that off? Again, efficiency. So it's almost a scarcity that is, that is driving Absolutely. Uh, innovation. Absolutely. And so um, these two things combined, the timing and the no legacy part, as well as the basically need to be efficient, these led, led to this sort of experimentation with uh, the latest technology at the time. And that meant basically experimentation with how to bring frontline services online, how to automate back office uh, routine procedures away that we could you know, 
do more um, as a government with less amount of people as, as officials and, and less amount of taxpayers' money. But Estonia is also punches way above its weight in terms of technology and innovation. You are the, the country that gave us Skype, uh, but other uh, creations like Kazaa. Uh, many see Estonia as kind of a mini Silicon Valley, which is amazing for a country of uh, 1.3 million people. What is it about the, the, the education system, about the economy, that allows this sort of innovation to thrive? I think there are two things there. First of all, three things. So first of all, um, we benefited from um, the fact that through centuries now, education per se has been very, um, very much a cool thing, or very much the thing to strive for, right? Even, let's say, if, you know, farmers um, got their independence in the middle of the 19th century, right? I mean, they made a point to educate the kids and children. So basically, that's the whole point. That, you know, education is, is a very highly valued thing. Secondly, um, the way that Soviet Union worked, um, so way, 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 way back, was on some keen random specialization, right? So different uh, countries got different things that they had to produce or be good at. Estonia, by some lucky chance, got uh, computer science as one of its things. So we had some of the most front-running sort of uh, old-time uh, computing centers and com computer science centers in the country. These remained, these people remained. So the, they started educating the new generation as times were changing. And so um, the third thing is that so we clearly figured out that as internet was going mainstream, as we were starting these experimentations, that we need to uh, also provide our children with more and more sort of technical skills to be ready for the future. And so we really started from middle of 90s with sort of mass programs, how to, we started really as one of the first countries who brought internet and computers to all, each and every school, even the smallest ones. And then sort of you're building a curriculum from all the way to coding and stuff from that. So it's been a conscious effort to basically get kids uh, to, to learn these sort of skill sets and, and to do more with it. And even today, I mean, we do try quite a bit all the way from kindergarten to reskilling of adu adults now, how to basically make them upgrade those skills all the time and be ready for the, you know, uh, the digital future uh, workplaces. And, and you're one of the countries pushing coding in, in, in kindergarten yeah. and trying to inculcate uh, that, that learning at the, uh, at the earliest ages. And I think it's fair to say that Estonia today is well ahead of other countries like even Canada in terms of digital services, uh, but also digital thinking. With, uh, within the government. And I'm curious how that has changed the life for the average Estonian. How is it different today because of this transformation than, say, a decade or two ago? Well, remarkably. I mean, so um, we, we would not, first of all, imagine even today, let's say, uh, getting stuff done without sort of, you know, laptops, computers, or, or phones for that matter, and, you know, having services online. Literally, I mean, in, in all sort of everyday, very daily practical aspects, let's say, it has infiltrated how we do things. Like, when you walk in Thailand, you rarely see a, a parking machine to park a car because people do it with a mobile, right? And have been doing it for a long, long time now. When um, in banking, like there's only very few bank offices out there, right? Because nobody really goes there except those guys who want to get, perhaps get some special uh, counseling or advice. Uh, everything happens again with the, with the online banking. It has been for a long, long time. Like we never had checkbooks, for example. We went to online first and, uh, and foremost. Um, to all the way to, the, for example, when we sign things, we don't sign on paper, we sign digitally. So if I have to think somewhere like 
like in the hotel last night, I had to think how does my signature go. It's not in the hand because you don't do that. You rather use a digital identity with my mobile or an ID card, and with that I attach the signature. And you know, it's different. It's from small things like this, um, you see the manifestations of the change. And these are not just cool things. I mean, each and every one of them somehow gives some value in terms of time. We save money. We save the efficiency we gain as an everyday user or, or the public sector and the economy overall. And as a resident or citizen in Estonia, I just have to register once with the government. Is that correct? I don't have to tell every agency what my birth date is, what my street address is. You've got my identity. So basically how it works is, yes, so you don't, you don't, even, you don't have to really register yourself. So if you're born, for example, these days, then uh, the hospital already does it for you, right? So uh, the kid gets the identifier, and that is the core of digital identity that stays with you for your life. Now, um, but... You're right to say that. I mean, we do follow the rule uh, called once only, or I guess uh, you might also know, like ask once or tell us once. Mm. Countries call it differently. But the whole point is that so we should not be asking data again that some part of government already knows. So rather, in our even law, it says that we have to reuse uh, data in the back end and thus make the service interactions more seamless, more uh, faster, better for the end user. So wait, you have a law that requires agencies yep. to, to f- follow yep. this. This isn't just a guideline. It's, yep. it's yep. entrenched in law. Unless it's somehow, for some reason, specifically banned. So for example, if we have sometimes elevated some specific privacy safeguards, only then you know you shouldn't. But, but yes, other than that, uh, you should always uh, only ask once. We'll, we'll talk about all the privacy issues that are probably popping to people's uh, minds as they're hearing you talk. But I'm curious, going back to the 90s, how Estonians thought through this, this evolution. Coming out of the Soviet era, mm-hmm. to tell Estonians, okay, you're going to be registered at birth. Big Brother, the government, is going to know uh, everything about you uh, from, from, from the moment you're born. Mm-hmm. Didn't that spook Estonians and give them a bit of a, a flashback to that, uh, that truly centralized, state-controlled era? Well, there's a few things there. First of all, um, somehow, I'm going to choke now, but I mean, so I don't really mean it, but, um, you know, people were used to this anyway. <laughs> um, but, but on a serious note, like, I mm. get your question, and, and I don't really have a good answer except like a hypothesis of my own. I'm a bit too young for that. But uh, to say that... Um, there's a fundamental difference. I mean, what happened before, I mean, the, the sort of centralized sort of structure that was before, that was not our government. I mean, it was not our country when we were occupied. I mean, as if, you, if you look from a Estonian perspective, right? Mm. We restored independence and then we really started our own. So, and from that point on, there's been very high trust against the state because it's ours. It's, it's you know, so even if uh, you, some people think it's naive, but ultimately we can vote, we can, we can sort of have some say in how does that all thing go forward, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that changes the dynamic. And I, I don't really see that um, in many other countries, I don't necessarily see that same sort of belonging or ownership of your own country or state like that, right? Um, that's one thing. Secondly, we were always very careful. We, so the same sort of guys, uh, engineers and sort of visionaries who came to said, look, why don't you government start applying this technology more? They were also very um, visionary in saying, look, you have to have very strong safeguards when you do that in terms of a legal framework for data protection, for example, and privacy, uh, to basically, you know, technical tricks and things you can use, like identity, having strong identity or, or so forth, to protect uh, the data and sort of ensure people that if they trust you, that, that you can be trusted. How, um, how have people's lives improved or, or maybe gone more negative? Uh, 
because of uh, because of these changes over the last decade. Um, well, but like I said before, I think on a very practical level, look, I mean, daily life has changed very radically, right? So, but if you if you if you see from privacy point of view, uh, possibly, then uh, we clearly see that people have gotten more conscious of that, right? So, and and not not, and that hasn't really changed their attitude towards gov governmental digital services or digital public services, but rather in a sort of private space. Let's say so the stuff that they do online and the things that they the data that they share in their private lives, right? But to the to the average Estonian. Has this led to a significant improvement in quality of life, being able to, to navigate government purely from their phones? Well, I would tell you this way. I mean, so I'm biased, so I would, I would argue this. Uh, because if, if we look at whatever sort of objective measures of, uh, you know, how that has allowed us to um, lower taxes, how that has allowed us to, and that affects everybody's sort of uh, um, incomes, how that has allowed you to save time. Now, now you can spend it to work more, spend more with the family, right? The fact that I don't have to queue in any office anywhere, right? So, I mean, it, it's, it's like a daily sort of, you know, gain that I can have, right? In terms of productivity and sort of more sort of freedom to, to do, uh, control my own time and spending. Now, but I think if you really ask Estonians on, on the street, these things have become part of our daily lives and routines, Right, so uh, I don't think that people necessarily appreciate the changes happened because you take it for granted yeah. and given, especially as you also tend to forget now that you know how things used to be 20 or 15 or 10 years back, right? So, and I think so. What I'm trying to say is that in in, in that sense, let's say I think the average Estonian would say no, it hasn't changed that much at all. But if you really put your mind to it, it's been radical change. But it just comes and goes and it's so deep that you don't notice it. You, you mentioned the cost savings. What do you figure it is for the uh, for the country? So the thing is that so we actually haven't been able to do like, like reasonable calculation in terms of like the whole aggregate impact, okay? But we have uh, quite a bit of bits and pieces about sort of, you know, how from sector to sector, if we look at, let's say, the health spending, you know, how much, uh, you know, uh, more efficient we are just because we have lots of digital data available and records. Or if I look at, let's say, that uh, our tax um, administration is the most effective in the world when it comes to the taxes we gain as opposed to the, uh, the cost of doing that. Um, I guess the best figure that I always like to use is that um, if we take digital signatures alone, okay, so with my digital identity, I can sign any sort of documents in a fully legally valid manner, like I sign on paper, right? So like even business to business contracts, so business to customer contracts, like in a bank or otherwise, all these things can be now, uh, all these interactions can be fully digitized because at no point, no paper, no meeting has to occur. That alone in the whole of economy uh, we estimate that uh, saves us about a work week for everyone employed, okay, at least. Mm. A work week, if you think about an, uh, an, a year, right, you have about 50 productive weeks, depending on holidays in the country, but let's put it this way. So one work week saved is 2% of annual output, meaning GDP, right, that you're more efficient by. Mm. And, and that signatures alone, and the other digitization effects add to that. Let's talk a bit more about the privacy concerns. There's certainly an efficiency gain, as you were just outlining, in having all this data together and having the right architecture for it. Uh, but I can't help but imagine that there are concerns about different branches of government knowing too much about me as a citizen. There are some things I may not want the police to know, for instance, or I may not want the tax de department to know, or the health department, for that matter, to know. I want to choose what each of those arms of government knows about me. How, how do you ensure that citizens have that control over what the state knows about them? In Estonia, 
we, we are a member of European Union, have been since 2004. That's meant that for 20 years now, soon, like, you know, we've had the same level of protection and data protection framework and privacy framework than all of the rest of Europe. Now, so that means that the, the rules and the, sort of the, the, the space we can maneuver in and sort of, you know, build those digital transactions in has been rather sort of, you know, uh, straightforward and, and in that strict too. But that's okay because we want... We don't want to be uh, misusing data and, and the trust that we are, uh, people give us. So the legal side is the one, one thing like that. Um, we do have the capacity to reuse any, shit, like, any data. We, like we said, we even have the need to reuse data unless it's banned. But all those things are um, agreements. So basically all those sort of sharing, data sharing will happen and reuse will happen within boundaries defined by law. Let's say law defines what police can have access to. Law defines what medical doctor can have access to in terms of data sort of sources, right? Within those bounds is what, where once only appears, not outside, right? So a doctor cannot go to the office and say, I would like to have now this education data of this person. No, that's not in the business. That's not how the regulation foresees. And so basically through, what I'm trying to get this through development of his legal rules, through uh, basically making sure that they get applied, that's the strongest sort of safeguards there is. And ultimately, do you believe in rules like that? Comes to, let's say, do you believe in rule of law? In Estonian case, at least I can say that, I mean, rule of law and establishment of that has been the strongest priority since the early 90s. And I mean, it, 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 it's there. So the legal side is one thing. But on a technical and practical level, I mean, we see also quite a bit you, we can do there as well to ensure people. So simplest things. Um, all information systems usually have logbooks, okay? Right, so there's a law kept about say, who does what and sort of what data gets changed and when and how. We made that, we have made some of these logbooks public for you. For example, in my health record, um, digital health record, which is possibly you know, my most sensitive data, okay? I can go in and see which doctor accessed my uh, health data and when and, and so forth. If I have such, and, and so we have basically allowed you to have an oversight of how does the public officials, how do they handle your data? And through that, I would say that exactly then effectively the safeguards, legal safeguards kick in. If I think that they didn't have a business with my data, I can sort of, you know, uh, have an investigation started and the claims and, uh, sorry, fines and stuff involved as well. So it's um, small tricks, even with features in sort of interfaces and technology, that we can basically very powerfully, uh, you know, ensure the privacy and the rights uh, in a fundam fundamental way. So that makes good sense, but hearing you talk, I can't help but think of how artificial intelligence may pose new challenges for you. And as you work with learning algorithms the way the whole world is, and those start to chew through data in ways that are much more sophisticated and speedier than, uh, than humans ever can imagine, do you need to change the safeguards? Do you need to change your laws? Do you need to change your approach to even the, the data relationship between state and citizen as artificial intelligence becomes more powerful with all that data? I mean, I think the way that we look at it in Estonia is that actually we look at AI as a very much as a, as a promising thing, right? Because I mean, for our challenge of efficiency, I mean, that could hold very many benefits. And I mean, the way we also looked at it, at least from, from government CIO, my point of view, from the legal sort of side and the, uh, the data protection and privacy side of things, look the, the same sort of principles sort of will apply and basically very much take care of the problem also in the sort of AI era. So if I take something like, um, okay, so if it's legally defined what sort of uh, thing an official has access to, 
let's say if a police has only access to certain, I don't know, 10 different data sets, random number, okay? Look, if, if I train AI for police work, right? Again, I can set the same sort of boundaries to what it can play with and how far it can go. So I can also, on an algorithmic level, actually sort of you know, apply the sort of the legal sort of safeguards uh, very well. Um, but the trick, I think, is in a different place. The trick is there to basically, of course, that the challenge is that, so how do I know and who ensures that these rules are obeyed, okay? Mm. And I think that's a much more like practical challenge of how do we uh, upgrade our data protection inspectorates and then so forth. How do we ensure sort of, um, what's the right English word, algorithmic sort of um, um, transparency, right? And sort of, you know, ability to understand those systems, right? And, and there we need to figure out some practical solutions, but fundamentally from, from legal and principle point of view, I don't see that much that needs to change. Having said that, I think we might need to have um, some more policy and sort of uh, discussion about how far do we go by applying these sort of changes. So, for example, if I said, look, if, if today law allows policemen to have access to 10 databases, perhaps in an AI age, it might make efficient sense to have them to 15. Do we do that? Now, mm -hmm. that's a debate of, you know, do we extend uh, or loosen the safeguards for the sake of efficiency? But that's a different debate. I suspect most governments uh, in the world are having the same discussion or debate, and, the, and, the, and they should. Curious what we can learn from Estonia. I think the interesting thing, if I just briefly interrupt, the interesting thing there is that so I see so many people around the world who go around saying, look, we, should ha we have to have this ethical debate, but there's so little of that actually happening, <laughs> of, of in terms of how do we practically sort of make it sort of work, and perhaps, I mean, perhaps the rules are there, we just need to exactly apply them. So who, who should lead that debate? Well, so I think... I'm a very big fan of, let's say, the sort of quite a few initiatives that have come up from academic side as well as the uh, the business side of things, right? Because clearly, it's it's one thing you sort of governments try to sort of you know regulate this sort of uh, legal framework side, but ultimately a lot of it is also self uh, and self conduct and control, right? So even all the way, you know, you know, um, the AI academies from Montreal here have done quite a bit of let's say, pioneering work in this area, right? And starting last year, I believe. So. That's one thing. We need industry. We need the sort of really the experts involved in this and, and driving some of this. But at the end of the day, the way that I look at the role of governments is basically exactly ensure the, the, the fair rules and playground and sort of be the arbitrator in this field. Exactly. A lot of, it has to end somehow in, in, in the uh, legal framework and, and the sort of uh, legislation as well, right? If it's not there before. So Estonia has helped create a group called the D7, the Digital 7, that Canada's uh, one of the countries, Uruguay is another one. It's an interesting mix of, uh, of countries that are... All the best players from all the other regions of the world. So is that sort of body, the D7, uh, sort of the digital equivalent of the G7, the sort of group that can lead us into this interesting but challenging future, or do we leave it to the power, superpowers, the US, China, maybe the EU, or do we let the United Nations run with this, or do we let the private sector, the Googles and Facebooks and other uh, data powerhouses of the world I don't set have the a, framework? I don't have a good answer to you, um, let's say, who should basically, can we have like universal rules at the end of the day, right? I, I think a very practical way forward is to take it this way that, like I said, I mean, it's good that, you know, experts and sort of private companies are trying to figure out the sort of you know, rules for themselves in a way, but we clearly need wider rules as well because, I mean, these experts and companies don't really involve all the players in the sort of whole of ecosystem, right? And that's again where the sort of governments and sort of the, the legislation comes in because that will apply to any, everybody. Now, should it be UN? Can it be global rules? I'm a bit sort of um, pessimistic on that. 
looking how there are also quite a few nation states in the world who are you know, rather sort of self-interested in bending those rules or, or doing them this way that actually takes a bit too far. I rather much believe that sort of let's say, groupings around some sort of shared values come up with the uh, most progressive stuff, like the European Union. I mean, for example, the European Union, the way that it's currently seen is that so we could perhaps offer a very sort of value-based sort of solution in the space, right? Because we share quite a bit of values within European, uh, between European countries. So I think the immediate step with the long charade is to say that I think there will be like multiple ideas on the table and I think that's good. We need to get more flesh to the bones and from that then through practice see what works the best and then scale that globally. So t- tell us a bit about where you think Europe is going in terms of data governance, digital governance more, uh, more broadly and may- maybe speak specifically to uh, the GDPR, the uh, General uh, Protection of Data Regulation that is coming into effect tomorrow, May 25th. Curious how how that's going to play out in Estonia and more broadly across Europe and where you see Europe going over the next few years in terms of digital governance? I think when it comes to GDPR, then um, everybody's clearly now on hold to see let's say, how, it, how it actually does play out in practice. The, uh, the principles that GDPR is, is, is based on and sort of, you know, the directions that, sort of it was, that it includes... Um, they are very widely supported in Europe, right? And sort of, you know, I would also argue very much clearly in the, in the right direction because we want to live in a digital society where we also don't um, don't deter, don't hurt the fundamental rights of people. Now, having said that, I mean, there's a lot of practical devils in the details, right? And so how it plays out. And in, in that sense, there's quite a lot of those details still have not been agreed even on European level, right? And so there's, there's like an ongoing body of work that our data protection inspectorates and sort of other experts have to do. Now, when it comes to Estonia and, and actually any country in Europe as well, I think it sort of works on two different levels. In Estonia, in the government, since we don't envision something that much as an impact because um, we've been you know, following strong sort of data protection framework and go moving in the same direction uh, already pre- before GDPR. Um, in private economy, and especially for SMEs now, who um, perhaps before didn't really fall into their remit of uh, data protection and sort of, uh, or didn't see their role too much there, now that they're being faced with strong fines and, and requirements for that, they are having quite a bit of adjustment challenge. But so in the wider economy, I think it might take even more time to really sort of see how it plays out. And so if you ask, let's see, what's the road ahead for the few years? I think he, my own view is that probably we will sort of have to see how GDPR plays out and you know, whether it needs some sort of tweaking and adjustment or not. Mm. So my, my exposure to GDPR is probably like a lot of listeners. My inbox is, is full of uh, notifications. I didn't know I had so many European friends or <laughs> relationships with uh, Euro- European-based uh, companies. And it's a good chance to clear out uh, uh, my closet, if I can uh, refer to it uh, that way. But there's a more important challenge, which you've t- touched on, and that is whether this tightening of privacy restrictions in Europe is going to stifle innovation. And we're now seeing the world sort of devolve in different ways. The U.S. is still fairly open in terms of privacy. China follows its own course. Europe's getting tighter. Is Europe at risk of driving innovation offshore to the U.S. or China or other markets where it may be easier for those, for those SMEs? Well, it's a value-based question you're asking. And I think the European answer is also very much value-based too, right? And that's to say that we don't want innovation at any price. 
we want basically innovation that actually also sort of preserves some sort of values and sort of you know ways of life that we believe in, right? So um, that's exactly to say that um, that look, I mean, we don't want innovation, we don't want new digital services or products out there that, for example, you know, violate people's privacy, right? Take it a bit too far. So in that sense, the innovation can still happen, but we want to sort of you know want the fruits of innovation to be within certain boundaries, right? And I mean, we do that in other spaces as well. Um, if you take Estonia, for example, all the digital services we try to build in government, we try to build from a security by design approach. We already build them within some sort of boundaries of security rules and notions that we have, right, in order to really sort of make them the best secure as we, as we can or we think we can. And so that's to say that without those boundaries, I mean, yes, there might be more innovation quantitatively, but it's exactly the, the one that sort of people in our community, which is the whole Europe, right, want. No. But isn't the biggest concern in the public mind not the innovators, it's not the SMEs, it's the global platforms. It's the Facebooks of the world. We saw Mark Zuckerberg this week in, in Brussels getting a good grilling from uh, elected officials. And Europeans have signaled uh, very clearly that Europe is going to take a different approach. Uh, we'll see how that plays out uh, with, the, uh, with, with the global platforms. And I raise that skeptically because Europeans seem to have acted with their feet or their thumbs. They're staying with Facebook, no matter what the politicians right. say, because it's, it's an excellent platform. It, it allows them to do things that they're very happy doing. And if there's a bit of a trade-off there for privacy, right. regardless of uh, whatever regulations right. come out of Brussels, most Europeans are willing to make that trade. And the same would be true in, in the US and Canada and, and elsewhere. And, and to me, that's all right. And that's exactly, but I mean, the, it comes down to that, so is there also an alternative as a choice available, right? So basically, you know, for example, if you take Facebook example, then, you know, I would argue that the, not because of GDPR, but also for all the other reasons, I mean, their rules, their internal sort of, you know, um, development rules and sort of conduct, for example, has changed quite a bit, right? right? Uh, so, and hope, I mean, hopefully for the better. So, um, so that sort of change is all right. And, and that's exactly the sort of impact that, you know, I guess politicians would like to have, right? They don't want to ban things away. They don't want to basically block people from accessing those services. At least uh, if you're not protectionist, there's a few sort of very outrageous sort of anti-platform um, people in Europe too. But for all the others, the whole idea is not to basically somehow block these um, platforms away, but rather make them safe, safer for people to use. You, talk, you talked about European values, and, and, and that raises an interesting challenge to those who hope there's going to be a universal approach to data and a universal approach to digital governance versus a regional European versus American or even, an, yep. uh, even a national approach. Do you think we're going to see more of a localization rather than a globalization of approaches to digital governance? This is a very personal view now, but I think I was sort of hinting on this, saying I think that will be the first step from which we can harmonize, right? And sort of take further. I mean, if you think about something like global trade, depending on, well, my argument would be that, I mean, in trade, we sort of had the same sort of thing, right? So, I mean, we, we've gone through years of liberalizations and stages of that, right? You to harmonize and sort of, you know, sort of come, to, come together more. Trade also can be a bad example because we also have in trade areas where we haven't been successful, of course. So, um, so I think... It, We'll see the dynamic, but I'm hopeful in the sense that uh, as there are many players of the world, for example, even those platforms we talked about, right, who would rather like to see a more common ground, there will be a push for harmonization happening. The problem will be the outliers, 
So countries um, like China, like Russia, those who have a very sort of very very different idea of what does it mean to be online and what sort of what are fundamental rights anyway, right? So for them, we're going to have a challenge. Yeah, it's interesting to hear a country the size of China being called an outlier because it is going to be the world's largest economy and probably the world's largest digital economy within uh, within a within a decade. Will it set a global standard that we'll that many of us will have to follow in one way or another? I would like to think not, because again, I mean, I, I quite hear the sort of um, objectives of economic terms, right, in terms of how many people they have and what is the market force. Um, my own view on that, having also worked and studied on, on some issues of China a bit in the past, is to say that probably it sets a standard perhaps clearly for their own market, <laughs> that would be a different set of rules. It might also be uh, somehow to try to extend those rules to some of their uh, countries that depend on them, so in the region, for example, and so forth. But globally, no, that would take a very different sort of geopolitical and otherwise environment uh, to play out. I mean, others would have to let go of their values. So the, the flip side of privacy, I suppose, might be, might be security. And you, you've referenced that a couple of times already. Uh, growing up next to Russia, Estonians are probably highly attuned or acutely aware of cybersecurity threats. And I assume you're excellent as a nation in terms of defending your, uh, your digital borders. As, you, as the state becomes uh, a greater and greater repository of people's data, sitting next door to a country that has a very good track record of digital subterfuge uh, and a, a very good track record of crossing borders, uh, digital borders, that is, how do you ensure that your cyber defenses are going to protect the people of Estonia when you're up against those superpowers of, uh, of hacking? Right, I should start by saying that in that sense, um, you sort of hinted yourself, but it doesn't matter whom you're next to, right? It matters who's interested in you. So um, there's quite a few sort of malicious actors of the world, right? Whether we look at sort of nation states or whether we also look at beyond them, right? All the way to cyber criminals. I mean, if, if we look from our national cybersecurity policy perspective, in many ways, the cyber crime is even as much of an issue than otherwise, because that's a daily thing sort of that will impacts people on the streets more than possible sort of hacking of some government systems, right? Although the latter can be much more impactful and, and do more harm. So what I'm trying to say is that sort of um, from risk management point of view, which is like always the you know, um, probability uh, times the impact, right? I mean, so we have to deal with these things that are more probable, like cybercrime, as much, right? Now, and, and that brings me to the heart of the answer to say that we have always clearly understood, and not just because of our geographical location, but, but otherwise, that we have to defend ourselves in cyberspace. Even against sort of, you know, guys living in Estonia who might want to sort of hack some stuff, right? So the way we work at it is we work at it sort of on multiple levels. First of all, we do a lot of work uh, with um, awareness and skills of people. So that we call it sort of cyber hygiene, that, you know, all the way from kids to elderly that would know how to be safer online and, and you know, uh, learn the tricks and sort of, you know, best essential um, knowledge for that. Because ultimately, I think it's an old sort of joke, but I mean, the problem is between the chair and the device, right, oftentimes. And most sort of successful attacks become because somebody clicked the wrong thing or did something sort of silly uh, as a user, okay? And so that's what we try to prevent. Secondly, we try to, as I hinted at this before, we really believe in security by design. So the way that, at least in government, when we try to sort of you know, design for systems, we, we have certain 
uh, security standards and frameworks and sort of uh, solutions we incorporate exactly to be as safe as we can. But the third la layer now, but we know that we can still be hacked. I mean, you can never be 100% foolproof. I mean, tech can fail. So the whole idea there is that so we have to be good enough in finding out these incidents and react to them if it happens. And that's daily investment, that's daily monitoring what happens in our networks and sort of, you know, trying to also exercise for those conditions. We are, um, by the way, Estonia indeed, I mean, we, we try to be good at cyber security. We are one of the world's main um, training platforms and training grounds often, even for NATO and European Union stuff, uh, in, in practicing in life for some of these sort of large-scale incidents through so that we can be ready if it actually happens. And the fourth thing is international alliances. Yes, we uh, work a lot bilaterally with some of the best sort of cybersecurity countries of the world, as well as in multilateral forums. Yes, I mentioned NATO. NATO has its cybersecurity center in Estonia because we, uh, we successfully pitched that you know, we have to work on these issues in also uh, defense collaboration or in European Union even, for example. Yeah, it's a really important point that probably a lot of Canadians don't appreciate is, is this digital or cyber alliance that has developed through NATO and Estonia has been uh, at, the, at the very forefront and is, is leading NATO, uh, but working with Canada uh, very closely in terms of how we yeah. help uh, build uh, cyber walls. I don't think we've come to grips with the Article 7 challenge of uh, NATO where an attack on Estonia would Article be five. seen. Or Article 5, I'm sorry. Uh, thanks for correcting me, but Article 5 would uh, mean an, an attack on Estonia, a cyber attack would be seen as an attack on Canada or, or, or the US. Well, to be fair, I mean... Are we uh, going to have to come to grips with that? Uh, sure, and I, I think there's quite a lot of work going on this. Again, the, the same sort of NATO's um, competence center on cyber security and cyber defense issues that, that is based in Thailand, that's exactly the stuff it works on. Let's say trying to figure out the, um, the manuals and sort of, you know, routines and, and also the, uh, the policy. So how to apply, for example, something like Article 5 when it comes to that. What are the conditions you have to meet? What's the, what's the level of attribution you have to meet and stuff like that? So there's, there's, there's like academic and expert work going in this direction, really. To be fair, um, I would argue that perhaps, again, it's like a, like, like a point of view of mine, but I mean, we luckily so far have not had these cases in NATO countries where something like that would have really been on the table to discuss, but it might, and we have to be ready for this. And that's the whole point of, of preparation work all the way to exercising. So we've got about uh, five minutes left, and I want to hear more about your plans for the e-residency program. Maybe you can tell us first a bit about the origins of e-residency. Sure. As I understand it, any of us can become an e-resident of uh, Estonia. Anyone uh, can become virtually Estonian. Yes, so, the, so we, um, the idea was very simple. So we don't make enough babies, okay? So how do you grow a country? One of the ways to grow is that you have more uh, uh, users and more, basically, sort of consumers, right? So... Um, as we don't make enough babies, so we thought, but hey, can we grow digitally? Because we have digital identity, we have had for a long time, we have services, can we somehow open them up to the wider world and, and in that sense create like a digital community of sorts? So that's how we started experimenting and we sort of pitched the idea and sort of saw if it gained traction in a very sort of startup way. And when we went live with this, the, um, the interest overwhelmed us actually. Um, Where's the interest coming from? 
which parts of the world? Globally, I have to say, the biggest, the, the biggest use case, I should start from this, the biggest use case to become an e-resident is that if you come from outside the European Union, you want to sell something in Europe. Your, own, your services, your digital products, uh, you want to export something there in physical sense, whatever. You Usually, it's much easier if you have a local body for that. Um, there are classical ways of doing that. You hire a local accountant or somebody to represent you. These come with hefty fees. Through Estonia, you can basically, as an e-resident, you can uh, set up a company that you virtually run from a distance yourself. No middleman, very little hassle, very little cost like that. So we have about 40,000 e-residents, which sounds nothing in Canada and then globally, I guess. But, but yes, I mean, each week we uh, get more new e-residents than we have babies born. So, uh, and these e-residents immediately are economically active. They, they buy financial services and other sort of uh, services involved in running a company. And that's why we started this. We, we wanted to have new users. Now we have them. So I, I can see many of the, uh, the, the, the positive aspects of that, especially for the e-residents, but also wonder, is that not going to be a channel for some dodgier characters, for money launderers and yep. other people who don't want to show up on your shores physically? Absolutely good idea. Well, sorry, it's a good question in a way. Uh, the, that is why we go through quite a rigorous background check process, uh, first of all. To, uh, if you apply, we take time to really look into you. If we have any suspicion that you, know, you will be up to something shady or you, ha you have been up to something shady in the past, you don't become an e-resident. Secondly, what is fundamentally built is that if we find out at all that you were up to something bad, we stop your e-residency immediately, right? You lose all the stuff, right? So in that sense, it comes with a heavy penalty if you actually sort of engage in sort of uh, shady practices. Estonia, clearly a, uh, a global pioneer in uh, developing the digital state. Curious, when you look around the world, what other countries impress you in terms of their own evolution of a digital state? Well, there's um, about 10 or 15 countries in, around the world whom do we engage the most in, because again, we see there's like an accumulated excellence sort of, you know, or, or bold new plans that we try to learn from. In Estonia, we are very eager to copy what works elsewhere. I mean, because that you know, saves us time in reinventing the wheels. So for example, yes, the Digital 7 grouping you, we talked about, and Canada is also a member of, we talk a lot in that sense. There's you know, a few countries in Europe, there's a few other like Singapore in the world. But I have to say this, that look, no one is going to be the best at everything, and neither is Estonia, right? So we've had our small success like identity and, and data sharing and stuff like that. We have lots to learn in other areas. So, and, and that's really the whole sort of comparative advantage idea that, that, that comes to the game, that you know, if we keep our eyes open and um, we are bold enough, we might as well learn from others. And your prime minister is in Canada this uh, weekend. Yes. He's meeting with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Curious, is he going to pitch Prime Minister Trudeau on becoming an e-resident oh, of, uh, well, we'll, we'll of see Estonia? About that. We'll see about that. We'll be happy to have uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau as, as one of them. But I think what, what, what else will they talk about? What, uh, what areas of cooperation do you think yeah. are out there for Canada and Estonia to, uh, to advance? As a small teaser, you know, we are trying to cement, use this trip really to cement uh, what has been now a year-long growing relationship and dialogue on digital matters between Canada and federal government in Estonia. And um, I can clearly say from, from let's say, from the federal government CIO office point of view in, in Ottawa, um, the stuff that we have been doing in data architecture, data governance, data sharing, identity, is something that has been appealing to them. And there's some experts from Estonia who have uh, tried to sort of work along with uh, Canadian counterparts. Great. And, and if I can wrap up with a final question, when you look out, let's say, 10 years, how do you think Estonia will look? What will be different? 
you know, we're trying to get rid of interactions. We're trying to really sort of automate as many transactions away as we can. So if you need to get something done, why do you have to apply? Why do you have to go to an online site? We could actually try to figure out and, and use a bit of analytics and sort of, you know, you know, have it done for you. So essentially, I think what we try to look like in 10 years is that so there would be even less need to uh, interact with government for bureaucracy, right? But the more I hope that will be sort of means, other means to interact with the government and sort of, you know, have this attachment going stronger. Well, it's an incredible journey that, uh, that Estonia is, is on and uh, remarkable what you're showing the world can be done in terms of advancing the, uh, the electronic state in a very positive, uh, positive way. Simsika, thank you for being part of RBC Disruptors and thank you, thank you for being at C2. Thank you. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.